sorry for the technical difficulties. These things happen sometimes. Uh, but fear not, you know, we'll be here for a full hour and, um, and uh, hopefully we'll have some interesting uh, knowledge to gain. Um, as you know, sometimes I pick one single subject and sometimes I pick a few different ones depending on what's in the news. But um, of all crazy things, I was watching this program called House Hunters International. I don't know how many of you ever watched that program, but it's an interesting way to learn about um, uh, city life in different cities. And I was watching an episode where you had a white, white South African couple moving to China. And when they were interviewed by the real estate um, agent in China, Chengdu, they asked her, well, why are you coming here? And they said, well, we're here to earn money. So I said to myself, wow, imagine how things have turned around if somebody, uh, you know, a white person from South Africa has to move to China in order to make a living. Um, added to that was that at the beginning of this month, in November, there were very significant municipal elections in South Africa. And I said to myself, you know, why not uh, have a talk about uh, that subject? Because it's one of the most interesting places in the world and a place that I visited and uh, really enjoyed. So uh, that's what we're gonna do. We'll, um, we'll um, speak about South Africa, learn about South Africa. And um, then after that, we'll see where it goes from there. So um, South Africa is a very unique country um, in uh, the world and certainly in Africa. Um, the, uh, the uniqueness comes from its history it comes from its geographical location. It comes from the people who live there. Uh, all of these things mixed up together uh, gives it a kind of a very special, uh, we'll call it persona in, uh, in the world. Um, it is also a physically very beautiful country. It's also a very diverse country, both diverse in its nature uh, from, we'll call it from jungles to desert, uh, from snow-capped mountains to, um, you know, uh, beautiful beaches. And of course, diverse in its population. Uh, there's 11 official languages in the country, uh, different racial groups in the country, and, um, you know, certainly a turbulent uh, but interesting history. Uh, also a place of, of, of very large significance to, um, to the Jewish population in um, in uh, the world and in South Africa in particular. So um, let's uh, start speaking about that. Um, <clears throat> it's um, in, in terms of its prehistory, South Africa has just about the oldest human remains ever discovered anywhere in the world. So uh, we know that our species, Homo sapiens, uh, uh, originated in Africa. And uh, before we arrived, which is somewhere around 2 million years ago, there were many, many other sort of branches of humankind which had evolved and which had gone in extinct over the time. And the, the very earliest finds, the, the earliest finds of prehistoric man were made in South Africa. And when I was in university, I took a course in physical anthropology. 
And all we talked about were the discoveries in the caves of South Africa. So um, it certainly has a um, uh, kind of a, an extremely long history of uh, human and human-like habitation. The oldest um, modern humans that they found there were 170,000 years old. Um, there have been some other discoveries in uh, Kenya, uh, in Tanzania, uh, which may be older, and um, Ethiopia as well. But you know, clearly, Africa is the sort of cradle of civilization. The uh, when we come to more modern times. The original people who lived in South Africa uh, were people who uh, were referred to uh, by English speakers as Bushmen. And uh, they actually comprised two, two uh, different groups, um, the San and the Khoi, and sometimes called Khoi San. And these are people who made their living by hunting and gathering, and who up until Practically this last generation were living out in the wild and in the bush, chasing uh, animals and picking wild plants. They didn't practice agriculture. They didn't practice um, raising, um, uh, uh, you know, sheep or cattle. They just um, lived off of the land. Now, I remember watching a movie, and I think the movie was called Something Like the Last Hunt. And what this showed was how these traditional people uh, hunted uh, antelopes and gazelles by simply running, by running after them to the point where these animals, you know, are the, among the fastest in the world, uh, they just dropped from exhaustion and then they were killed and, and brought back to the camp. So these are people who were able to run like 40 miles uh, a day uh practically without nonstop and um that's how they did it and hunting with spears um you know needless to say uh that's not an easy way to make a living and uh modern ways have penetrated into um those people as well so they were the original inhabitants of south africa short people curly-haired people uh you know i would say kind of coppery coppery color skin, not dark black skin. And um, the, um, what we would call uh, today uh, black Africans only started penetrating into that area of South Africa in starting around 500 AD and going up until uh, somewhere around the 1300s. And these are people who migrated down uh, the uh, e mostly Eastern part of Africa uh, from uh, the northern, uh, from Uganda, uh, moving down until they reached into South Africa. They've got some old remains there from around a thousand of you know iron works, so they know that these are not made by these uh, by these more uh, undeveloped people that I just spoke about. Um, the uh, the um, uh, Two main groups who were moving down there were called the Kosas and the Zulus. And these two groups are, in fact, the largest um, uh, ethnic groups in South Africa today. Uh, the Europeans, um, their, their involvement with South Africa is extremely significant. And it was the Portuguese explorers who came down in the very late 1400s. 
And they were just following the coast of Africa and uh, until it kind of ended. Um, in 1487, Bartholomew Diaz, the famous explorer, he rounded the Cape uh, of Good Hope, meaning the very bottom of Africa, and started coming up the other side. He, he, he actually rounded the Cape in a, in a, in a, in a storm, uh, so he couldn't even see the coast and he didn't even know he was rounding it. But on his voyage back, he saw it and uh, realized that uh, this would be a route to India by sea. So just imagine that you were a trader uh, in Europe and you were trading for Chinese goods and Indian goods and everything had to be walked or caravaned over immense stretches of land, uh, let's call it from India through uh, today's Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, through Central Asia, uh, into Turkey, and then into Europe. Uh, you know, that would be one way. Another way would be along the Silk Road a little further north. But each step along the way involved uh, trade, tariffs, uh, you know, uh, fees, possibility of getting robbed, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. By finding a sea uh, route from Europe uh, straight around Africa and ending up in, of course, India or China, it, it uh, made life so much simpler and uh, made trade so much cheaper. So this discovery was really a major one in the history of, of Europe and the history of the whole world. Um, but the Portuguese, although they discovered, we'll call it discovered, of course, in quotation marks, just like, just like America was discovered, although they rounded the Cape of Good Hope, they never really made any settlements in South Africa uh, per se. Um, and um, by the 1600s, their power had declined. Uh, the Dutch power had gone up. And the Dutch had a company called the Dutch East India Company, which was doing the same route as the Portuguese had discovered. In other words, sailing down the coast of Africa and coming around to India, coming around to Indonesia. And um, from time to time, they stopped at the bottom of South Africa. Either they got shipwrecked or they uh, were stopping for water. And the people who were there found it was a very pleasant place to live. And they wrote back to uh, the headquarters, company headquarters and they say, you know, let's establish a, an, a trading post here, an outpost. And so they did. Uh, in 1652, uh, they established a, uh, um, uh, a station at Cape Town. And that was the first white settlement in South Africa. Um, so the Dutch were there since that time. Um, the Dutch East India Company expanded in South Africa. They imported slaves uh, from uh, uh, East Africa, from Indonesia, from Madagascar. Um, and um, not on, not, uh, I would say not on an enormous scale, but still quite a lot because these people worked on their farms and their farms were quite extensive. Now, when these people arrived, uh, they mixed uh, with the um, Dutch settlers and created a kind of a mulatto community. In other words, a community which was, we'll call it, let's say half black and half white. And these people you know, became known in, in South African terminology as coloreds. 
and or Cape colors because they were from Cape Town, Cape area. And to this day, this group of coloreds uh, form a distinct uh, community and a distinct population. Uh, when apartheid came, when uh, racial classifications came into South African history, these people were given a special uh, designation as being neither white nor black. Um, they uh, adopted the Afrikaans language, which is uh, pretty well uh, the Dutch language that was spoken in Holland at the time, uh, mixed in with a few African words. And that's the, that is the Afrikaans language. So it's a Dutch, it's a Dutch uh, dialect, we'll call it. And um, so the, these colored people, that's their mother language as well uh, uh, till this day. Um, now, uh, when the Dutch uh, expanded their settlement, when they moved, they had to move inland to get more land and to explore. Because remember, South Africa is surrounded on three sides by water. So on the west side, it's by the Atlantic Ocean. On the south side, it's where the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean meet. And on the east side, it's the Indian Ocean. And this mixing of waters has a phenomenal local effect on the climate, uh, on the sea life, on everything else. So there's only one way to go, which is north. Uh, so either northeast or northwest. And if you go northwest, you end up in the desert. So the, um, the uh, Afrikaners moved to the northeast. And while they were moving northeast, the uh, black uh, migrants were expanding themselves um, from uh, the north, so they were moving northwest while the, the Dutch were moving northeast and bingo, of course, they met head on. And there were many um, incidences of local violence between the two groups. It's important to explain that um, this wasn't a case of, um, uh, as it was in, let's say, North America where the, um, where the French or the English had all the guns and they were easily able to defeat the, the indigenous people. Uh, the African people were very well armed um, and the uh, Dutch were uh, sort of uh, not huge armies and not huge in numbers. There, there wasn't a military presence. It was much more of a, an individual groups of people who, who ended up uh, fighting. And so it was a much more equalized battle. And some battles were won by the Africans and some battles were won by the, uh, by the Afrikaners. Um, uh, it's always interesting how world events far, far away affect events in local places. And this is the case of South Africa as well. So uh, we all remember that the Napoleon uh, in France became an emperor and he started a war in Europe to take over territory, and he took over Holland, among other places. Uh, well, when the British saw that, they said, well, wait a minute, if he's taking over Holland, he could end up taking over South Africa, and we certainly don't want the French to have all that kind of power. So the British came in in the uh, end of the 1700s, when, when this kind of world war was taking place between Britain on the one side and France on the other side. And Britain came in and occupied Cape Town uh, in order to prevent 
that Dutch colony from falling into French hands. And by 1806, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, Britain formally took over South Africa um, and uh, made it part of their empire. Uh, and shortly thereafter, you know, in the 1820s, they sent uh, English settlers to come to live in, in uh, the Cape uh, Colony, which was, as I said, a very fertile, mild climate, beautiful scenery area. And uh, so English settlers started to come in in the 1820s. So remember, of course, the Dutch had been there since the 1500s and the English started coming in in the 1800s. So it's quite, the Dutch were very, very well entrenched in South Africa, um, you know, uh, for 300 years before the uh, British arrived. Um, the uh, arrival of the British did not make the Dutch very happy. And this is because uh, the Dutch themselves who were there were, I would say, not average Dutch people, but these were people who were, in some senses, refugees from Holland itself. Uh, they were religious refugees. These were people who were strong, um, we'll call them Calvinists, people who were strongly uh, Protestant uh, and who, uh, for whom religion played a very important role in their daily lives. And they were escaping the more kind of modern Holland as it was turning out to be, the more uh, liberal Holland, as it was turning out to be. And they wanted to go to a society where they could just be farmers and, and follow the church and uh, have gatherings and meetings and, um, and you know, uh, uh, devote their lives to God. And so many of these people were the ones who ended up in South Africa. They were not the average Dutch people who were, you know, business people in uh, Rotterdam or Amsterdam or, 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 or the Hague or places like that. Uh, most often these were people who were from a rural background. Uh, and as I say, a very religious primi um, uh, uh, or uh, very religious um, fundamentalist Protestants. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, <clears throat> so when the British arrived then in South Africa in the 1800s, the 1820s, 1830s, uh, they didn't like what they saw. The Afrikaners didn't like the British ways. They didn't like the British taking over their, what they call their country. They didn't like the British kind of liberal open type of society, uh, uh, you know, alcoholism and then permissiveness and all these kind of things. And so many of them just picked themselves up and moved to the Northeast to get away from British control. So this is in, in the Afrikaner kind of mythology, this is called a trek. Uh, the Boer trekkers, the Boer trekkers, moving, picking themselves up and moving to the Northeast to live in areas not controlled by Great Britain, to set up their own self-governing states and to live the way they want to live. And they did that. And the British did not chase them. The British were just busy uh, in, in their own uh, colony in Cape, Cape Colony. Now, of course, not all the Dutch moved, but just some of them did. And uh, so the 1830s was this uh, great trek going uh, from the Cape Colony into the Northeast uh, uh, of what we call today South Africa. Um, and they only managed to live there. And, and of course, 
you know, the more they came in contact with the local black people, the more the fighting there was. But as I say, the fighting was mostly on a kind of a small scale, you know, cattle raiding, that kind of thing. Uh, sure enough, in 1867, diamonds were discovered in the inland part of South Africa. In 1884, gold was discovered and lots of it. Lots of diamonds, lots of gold. Uh, the moment that the British heard about these discoveries, they said, okay, that's it. We have to take over that territory. And um, they uh, tried to do that. Uh, so there was wars um, with the Africans uh, by the British, and there was wars uh, with the Boers by the British. Um, and um, the, when, when the British fought the Africans, uh, as is usual, they recruited enemies of the tribes that they were fighting to fight on their side. So in other words, the sort of uh, armies were composed of British and Africans versus other Africans who were enemies of the first group of Africans. And the French did this, uh, the British did this in North America. You know, the French, the Hurons and the Mohawks were always fighting with each other. And so the Hurons sided with the French and the Mohawks sided with the British and the two sides fought each other that way. So in a similar sense, that's what happened in South Africa as well. Uh, the Zulus were the most uh, strongest and largest uh, tribe. And that was the main enemy of the, um, the main enemy of both the Boers and of the British. And any of the subgroups or who were dominated by the Zulus uh, associated themselves with uh, either the British or the Dutch to fight against the Zulus. And that's kind of the way it went. Um, uh, so the um, turning point in this kind of conflicts was at the very end of the 1800s, um, 1899 to 1902 was called the, the Boer War took place. And uh, we know about this Boer War because if you go to downtown Montreal, of all places, you'll see a statue in, um, I think it's Phillips Square, uh, where it shows the Canadian forces uh, volunteered to join the British forces in the Boer War. So uh, th this war was so hard fought that the British had to recruit uh, troops from India and troops from uh, other uh, British uh, run places to join them to fight against the Boers. The reason that the Boers were so strong was that they were so rooted in the territory uh, and they used guerrilla tactics. They didn't have um, you know, heavy, heavy guns or anything like that, but they certainly were able to get around the land. One of the uh, reprehensible tactics that the British used in this war was that uh, when the men left to kind of go into, when the Afrikaner men left to join up in the military forces, the British came in and took their children and women and put them in concentration camps. And in looking at research for this little uh, talk, I read a fact that 27,000 of them died in these concentration camps. And in fact, in fact, these concentration camps turned out to be the model for what the uh, Nazis did in Europe uh, only a short 40 years later. 
the idea of taking people, putting them into sort of this large prison and starving them uh, was what the British did. In order to sort of tempt or force the Boers to stop fighting so that they would then come back to, to their families. In any case, the Boers did lose the war, but it took four years. And at that point, at that point, the um, four provinces of South Africa, the two English ones, which were the Cape province and Natal province in the east, joined up with the two Boer ones, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, and they became the Union of South Africa. Uh, so this South Africa as a country was created essentially in 1910. Um, interestingly enough, they decided on three different capital cities. You know, two is not enough. They had to have three. One in the, uh, we'll call it, one in the um, British uh, English dominated area in Cape Town. So that became the legislative capital. Uh, then another one in Pretoria, which was one of the, um, the Boer uh, uh, centers, which became the executive um, uh, capital. And another one in another Boer area in Bloemfontein in Orange Free State, which was the judicial capital. So that was the, that was the pattern. And you know, other countries have split things up that way as well. Uh, Bolivia comes to mind. Uh, and there's other countries with more than one capital city. Um, so one of the first laws passed by this new South African government was what's called the Native Lands Act, which limited black ownership of land. Very simple. It said blacks are not, with certain exceptions, blacks are not allowed to own land, to buy land, to sell land, etc. And this was the beginning of what was called in the apartheid system, although it wasn't formally enforced or formally enacted, um, it was clear when the Union of South Africa was set out that it was a, the Union of South Africa was for its white population and not for anybody else. Um, there were two different political parties, of course, uh, an English speaking one and Afrikaans speaking one. And these parties ended up joining up in 1934 and then they split up uh, called the United Party. And then in 1939, they broke up. Now, why do you think they broke up? It's because the Afrikaners did not want to go into to help Great Britain in the Second World War. And of course the British uh, descended people did. So there was this, this very big split in the white population over participation in the Second World War. And the Nazi party had a, quite a lot of Afrikaner sympathizers um, in South Africa in the 1930s. Um, at the same time, uh, as, an, as an aside, uh, Jewish people started arriving in South Africa in the late 1800s in the same way as they were arriving um, into uh, North America, into Canada, into the United States. These were refugees from the czarist uh, anti-Semitic uh, regimes. Uh, what's a bit unique about South Africa is that the community there almost wholly uh, came from Lithuania. And so it was a case of kind of one family following another. And they set themselves up as traders and small business people 
all over the country. Some of them own small stores. Some of them dealt, uh, believe it or not, in buying in ostrich feathers uh, and selling them uh, to, to uh, wholesalers. And uh, these feathers were used, you know, for making women's uh, hats. Um, and they sort of scattered themselves all around the country with, of course, the main concentration in the two big cities, Johannesburg and Cape Town. Um, after, the, uh, after the Second World War was over, there were elections in South Africa uh, in 1948. And for the very first time, the National Party won the elections. So the National Party was the party which represented Afrikaner interests. And uh, when it comes to numbers, uh, Afrikaners outnumbered, uh, you know, this is among the white population, Afrikaners outnumbered the British descended people by somewhere around 60 to 40. And so uh, they won an election in 1948 and immediately they had these, the, the leadership of the Afrikaner part of the National Party were were very strong Afrikaner nationalists. Uh, they were very strongly anti-Black uh, people. And they were the ones who initiated apartheid, the rules of apartheid. And the essence of apartheid, the word apartheid in Afrikaans simply means apartness, right? So being apart, uh, separation in other words. Now, they formally classified people according to their race. And so uh, everyone had a card, everyone was classified. They had to show up, uh, you know, in front of a, a inspector. The inspector would actually designate a race depending on what you looked like. Uh, you know, obviously in most cases it was pretty clear, but in other cases, sometimes you had people from the same family being given different classifications. But the classifications were basically uh, white, black, colored, Asian, and Chinese. So colored Asian and Chinese were all lumped into kind of one group. Uh, and these were kind of in the middle in certain way between the blacks and the whites. The, 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 um, the whole society was separated, separated in terms of, we'll call it housing, where you could live, uh, where you could work, what schools do you went to? Uh, what public facilities you were allowed to use? In other words, let's say parks or beaches uh, or any other public areas that you could use. Um, uh, the idea was that these groups were to be kept as separate as possible, to lead as separate lives as possible, um, with the only meeting place would be at work. And even at work, of course, the workers would be segregated according to their race. Uh, most often, of course, it was the whites who were the owners or the overseers of a business and the blacks who were the workers. And you know, the, the middle group, the coloreds, would be kind of the intermediary, intermediaries between the two groups. Um, the colored people, by the way, as I said before, lived mainly in and around Cape Town. So they weren't spread all over the country. They were really closely um, um, settled in the Cape province. Um, at the time, the whites were somewhere around 20% of the population, uh, somewhere around. Um, the blacks were somewhere around 65% of the population. 
and maybe 15% of the population were this uh, group of uh, coloreds plus Asians and uh, Chinese. So the Asians, these were people who were brought from India uh, by the British to work uh, often in the sugar plantations in the eastern part of uh, South Africa. And the Chinese came similarly. Some of these people were what, what's called bonded labor. In other words, what they did was they sold or rented themselves out to uh, um, a owner of a farm or business for a certain number of years who would pay their passage. And after a certain number of years were over, then they would be free to do whatever they wanted. Um, that was a system of what's called bonded labor. And often many of the Indian people were part of that. Uh, what's interesting is that many of these Indian people were Muslims. So these were people coming from uh, either India itself or what became Pakistan later on. And the, um, the South African Muslim community is based on the immigration of these people, um, uh, most of whom came in the 1800s. So they weren't recent arrivals, but they've been there for a very long time. Um, um, in 19, and the National Party held power pretty well uh, from 1948 until the end of apartheid. Uh, there was, um, uh, it, it was a democratic system for white people. So in other words, it was freedom of voting, freedom of expression, freedom of advertising, the same type of structure as we have in Great Britain or Canada or Australia uh, with a parliament and um, uh, constituencies but only white people were allowed to vote. So, um, you know, obviously representing only 20% of the population. And, uh, and the National Party won pretty well most, uh, all of the elections since 1948. Because as I said to you before, the Afrikaners were a larger majority uh, of the white population. Um, but, but other people voted for the National Party as well. And Afrikaners, the liberal ones, did vote for the opposition party, the United Party. Uh, so it wasn't sort of a strictly, uh, we'll call it ethnic vote, but it was a largely ethnic vote. Um, when the 1960s rolled around and uh, African countries began to become independent, the fear among um, Afrikaners especially uh, and whites in general were that one day, be, there being a minority, the blacks might take over in South Africa. And indeed, uh, South African blacks were inspired by the uh, rebellion in Kenya, the independence movement in Ghana uh, in the 19, late 50s, and then in the early 1960s, uh, practically the whole uh, continent became independent uh, of former French and British states. And only uh, in the bottom of Africa, the Portuguese held on to uh, Mozambique and Angola. Um, and uh, the uh, territories to the north of South Africa, in other words, Rhodesia, what was called Rhodesia and Botswana, uh, Bekuana land as they called it, they remained part of uh, the British territories. Um, and uh, partly this is because of local um, whites uh, who lived there who didn't want 
those countries to become independent in the same way as Great Britain allowed and Nigeria or Ghana to become independent because they had no white settlers. So in other words, the white settlers acted as a kind of a barrier to Great Britain um, uh, from, to Great Britain who otherwise would have uh, allowed these countries to become independent. So in a certain sense, the British descended white settlers were working against British interests um, and the British interests were to allow these countries to become independent and then to be, become allies and, and customers and uh, uh, suppliers to these countries. Um, so depending on the strength of the white settlement, that was the opposition to uh, independence. And um, you know that's kind of uh, how it went. South Africa, however, was already an independent country. Uh, as I said, in 1910, it was a kind of a uh, had the same status as New Zealand or Australia or Canada in terms of uh, Great Britain. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> in 1961, then um, South Africa became a republic because they didn't like the idea that Great Britain was asking them to end apartheid and to uh, share power with blacks. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> South Africa was kicked out of the Commonwealth at, in, in that year uh, because of apartheid. Um, but opposition kept growing. The blacks, of course, became stronger, uh, better organized, better funded uh, by uh, opposition groups and funded from the outside. Uh, the African National Congress was founded. Uh, this was a kind of a political party slash uh, military organization slash social organization, uh, which uh, led or spearheaded the opposition to white rule. Uh, there were other groups as well, especially Zulu-based uh, Zulu groups who opposed the whites and who acted instead of just sort of, um, you know, being passive, they acted uh, throughout the 1960s and 70s and 80s to uh, oppose white rule by demonstrating, by striking, by uh, the occasional violent uh, attacks on uh, the police force, etc., etc., etc. The world uh, began to um, uh, sympathize with and ally with these black movements. And uh, these black movements encouraged uh, a system of boycotting of South African uh, products. So the boycott meant that um, people would not buy goods made in South Africa. Uh, there was a divestment and a sanction. So BDS, what we know today as BDS, started in South Africa. So boycotting South Africa, divesting from South Africa, meaning pulling your money out of companies which were based in South Africa and sanctioning South Africa by, uh, by uh, fining any uh, companies dealing with South Africa. So they sort of tried to draw a ring around South Africa so that it would lose its legitimacy uh, politically, it would lose its, its power economically, and eventually they hoped that the regime would collapse. And it's exactly what happened. So the BDS sort of system took its time. It took perhaps 20 odd years, I would sort of guesstimate, 
But at, in the end, it weakened South Africa enough so that the uh, apartheid regime decided to uh, change its stripes and to, uh, to, to you know, change its politics and to try something different. Um, I remember that uh, my dad used to love, uh, of all things, South African wine. And uh, one day it was just became not available in the, uh, in the, um, in the liquor stores. Uh, Granny Smith apples, I think they were also originated in South Africa and they just were not sold uh, in supermarkets anymore. Um, but at the same time, of course, the power of the economic power of South Africa wasn't in apples or in wine. It was in commodities, so gold, diamonds, um, tons of different minerals, uh, coal, um, and these things have no labels on them. So uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, easier to, to market these goods abroad because you didn't have to label them and, you know, uh, uh, you know they could be sort of in a certain way smuggled without anybody knowing where they came from. Um, but it did have its effect on the economy and on the morale of the South African people, that's for sure. And by 1990, the uh, Prime Minister de Klerk, the President de Klerk, decided that um, it was time to change and to make peace with the Africans and to allow for a transition to, uh, to uh, share power with the African population. And a referendum was held in 1992 where the whites voted to end apartheid. So the first step was ending apartheid, meaning this sort of racial separation of, uh, of um, the racial separation of, of uh, the people in South Africa uh, and to allow services to be given to anybody. Uh, then uh, free elections were held uh, then, then he released Nelson Mandela for, from jail. Nelson Mandela was the leader of the ANC, the African National Congress. He was in jail for 27 years um, and, um, you know, for basically being a rebel. And, um, you know, he uh, ha happens to be probably, my, you know, speaking personally again, my, my, one of my biggest heroes in the world. Um, because he uh, never decided to take revenge after those for those 27 years. Uh, he decided that uh, once the blacks would take power, they would not uh, eliminate the whites, they would not expropriate the whites, they wouldn't kick them out of the country, uh, but that they would try to build a new country together. So, you know, the mark of a great political leader isn't all the achievements that he can do, it's that you know, when he has power, how does he treat the opposition? And, um, you know, that is really, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela deserves all the uh, hero heroic awards that he got because he was so moderate in that way. And there were opposition. There were, you know, the stronger um, uh, black nationalists felt that the whites should just be kicked out of the country and all their properties taken over. And Nelson Mandela felt that the whites were not what we would call, uh, you know, in terms of a sort of Israel settlers, but they were South Africans themselves and they had a stake in the country. And if you treated them properly, that they would only add uh, to, the, um, 
growth and wealth of everybody in the country. And that was his belief. Um, <clears throat> so the ANC won those first elections in 1994. So in other words, this is the first time that the blacks held political power in the country. Uh, by and large, the white population didn't vote for the ANC, but since all the blacks could vote, they were handed a, an overwhelming majority and uh, they have been in power ever since that political party, the ANC. So uh, we're talking now 21 and six, uh, 27 years the ANC has been in power in South Africa. Uh, Nelson Mandela uh, himself uh, was already quite elderly when he became the president. And uh, when he retired, uh, power was passed to uh, Mr. Mbeki and from him to Mr. Zuma. And both these two followers of Nelson Mandela turned out to be incompetent crooks uh, to one way or another. They, rather than added to South Africa, they bled South Africa by stealing money, by inefficiencies, by giving jobs to cronies who didn't work, uh, by hollowing out the system. And, uh, you know, South Africa as a kind of a economic power declined under their rulership. Um, they also did not um, act to expropriate the whites property, but they certainly did uh, employ um, uh, affirmative action, uh, placing, of course, their friends and relatives into top jobs in the country and um, uh, to favor blacks in any way they could uh, in the development of South Africa. Um, this wasn't, this is not a bad thing, obviously, because the South African blacks were the poorest people in the country and the majority in the country. But the benefits were not shared out equally. They were more or less given to their friends and relatives and, and, uh, and greater families rather than being spread out equally. Uh, some things were done to improve life for everyone. So in other words, electricity, for example, and water were brought into uh, the most far from, far flung uh, villages and towns. Um, but the schooling system, although improved, you know, was far from good and is still far from good. The healthcare system was, was improved, but is far from good. And, um, you know, a lot of money was wasted, which could have been used for development. Um, <clears throat> Uh, they also uh, re-divided, so uh, South Africa was a federal system before, uh, remember I said there were four states, so when the, uh, when the uh, Nelson Mandela took over, they divided the country up into uh, nine states to kind of give a more uh, ethnic representation to the different uh, tribal groups in South Africa, and as well, they uh, chose 11 languages to be considered official languages of South Africa, uh, languages to be taught in schools, uh, although by and large English has become the common language of the country. Uh, it's only spoken as a native language by somewhere around 6% of the population. Um, Afrikaans is spoken as a native language by about 13 or 14% of the population which would consist of the, the Dutch Afrikaners and the colored people who, who uh, mixed with them early on in Dutch rule. 
Uh, and the rest of the language groups are Zulu and Kosa, as I said, who are somewhere like 20 and 16%. And then you have a whole list of other African languages, each of which are predominant in one geographic area of the country. Um, so although it's, it's, it's certainly happening that let's say non-Zulu people will learn to speak Zulu, um, it's much more common for uh, all African groups to learn English and to use English as their um, uh, kind of uh, inter-group uh, language. One of the things that happened very unfortunately in South Africa in the 1980s was the AIDS epidemic. And, uh, you know, so many of us have forgotten about that already, but um, AIDS turned out to be a real uh, vicious uh, enemy of the country before COVID hit. And so many of the young people, uh, young men and young women caught it, uh, that it meant that um, children were being raised by their grandparents and it kind of really hollowed out a, a large section of that society. Um, and unfortunately, the leadership on the AIDS uh, uh, war was completely lacking from the South African leadership. They had all kinds of, they didn't want to admit that you know, they could be sick. They didn't want to admit that um, you know, uh, people could be spreading the disease through uh, unprotected sex. And um, they started coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas of how to treat it. And this only delayed, uh, you know, the treatment of the, uh, of, the, um, of the disease. And that led to a, a fall, a huge, by 2005, the life expectancy in South Africa had gone down to 52 years, believe it or not, as a, um, you know, an average uh, life expectancy. Um, um, now, as, as kind of tough as South Africa was in terms of the economy, and, and uh, to, we'll get a little bit into that later, but as, as, as sort of as tough as things were, things were much worse up north. In other words, all by, 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 uh, by the 1990s, all of the countries north of South Africa became independent. So Angola and Mozambique, uh, it took their independence from Portugal in the, I believe, 1980s. And then uh, to the north, Botswana, and especially Zimbabwe uh, and um, Zambia became independent as well in the 90s, um, 80s and 90s. And uh, most of the time, especially in the case of Zimbabwe, they were led by hugely incompetent, violent and uh, vicious uh, leaders leading to a huge exodus of people. Uh, in the same way, Angola and Mozambique um, uh, had civil wars going on in each country. And uh, that also led to a huge outpouring of refugees. And these people just came to live in South Africa because it's the easiest place to get into. It was a place where it was much wealthier, uh, even for blacks than the places they came from. And so you had uh, really a quite a large number of refugees numbering in the millions who came to live in South Africa from African countries to the north, especially Zimbabwe and Mozambique, especially those two. Um, but with economic times being tough, uh, riots took place uh, against these refugees and, and um, violent ones. Um, Finally, finally, uh, the um, power was uh, 
Mr. Zuma was finally tossed out of power by his own party. Um, you know, he had done so many things wrong. He had stolen so much money uh, that there was a fear that if he would keep on trying to run the country that the ANC would lose an election. And so he was replaced by the current president, Ramaphosa, who's a much more uh, reasonable, much more moderate, much more a realistic kind of leader. Unfortunately, his hands are still tied by the ANC kind of bigwigs, um, but he's tried to reform the country slowly and with uh, a certain amount of success. But there's still electricity shortages is one of the big problems in South Africa. Uh, most of their electricity is generated by coal burning and they're just as the electricity system is state owned and it's so was so graft ridden and creaky that there have been electricity brownouts and shortages and cutoffs uh, and power shedding uh, going on now for years. And it means that if you had a company or a factory, you know, you couldn't rely that your electricity would be on. And so, uh, you know, disinvestment from South Africa sort of uh, started and continues for, among reasons for that reason. The other big problem, of course, that they have is violence and security problems. So um, the, uh, the crime, you know, carjackings, kidnappings, um, violence, insecurity, especially of the wealthy people is so strong that people live in gated communities. And I was there, you know, in Cape Town and so Johannesburg, and, you know, uh, richer people live behind walls and the walls have sort of barbed wire on them and cameras and security companies and cut pieces of glass stuck into the cement to prevent people from coming in and robbing them. I was just reading a statistic that said that they're, the security, uh, security companies are such big business that they employ 400,000 people in uh, South Africa. So people are living in a kind of a fear um, of uh, violence, which was not controlled by the government for one reason or another. And um, this has led especially to immigration of the white population. And uh, the white population, as I said before, was at 1.22% that it's maybe high, and it's down now to around 9%. Um, the vast majority of those people moved to um, Australia, to uh, Great Britain, if they were of British origin, uh, to uh, United States and Canada, and the Jewish ones moved to Israel. Uh, by and large, there are many more English-speaking um, white South Africans left than Afrikaners-speaking South Africans um, because the Afrikaners, as I said, are rooted in that country and they see themselves as, as very local people and, um, you know, they're tied to that country uh, very, very strongly. Some of them, actually, I read, were moving up in the, to other African countries to, to set up farms in Namibia uh, and places like that. But the vast majority of, of Afrikaners have stayed in the country uh, and the English-speaking uh, whites, uh, many of them have left, as, as were the people that I saw on the TV that House Hunters said. Um, <clears throat> in fact, you might have read uh, just about 
that a, a, a Jewish uh, South, South African was just killed in Jerusalem in a kind of a terror attack, 25-year-old guy. So it just goes to show, in other words, how, how they have left. The Jewish community in South Africa was around at the top in the 1970s, around 120,000. And they're down to maybe around 67,000 today. I visited a Jewish museum in Cape Town, which was super interesting and a beautiful synagogue. Um, and the emphasis on that uh, history was how the Jews were helping the blacks uh, to gain their power and independence. So Nelson Mandela's lawyers, for example, were Jews. Uh, the very first agreement signed uh, to uh, end apartheid was between uh, Harry Schwartz, who was um, a prominent Jewish leader, and um, Mangasutu Butelezi, who was the uh, the uh, chief of the Zulu, uh, the Zulu tribe. And that was in 1974. So imagine how long before uh, the end of apartheid that was, 20 years. Um, so uh, the, uh, besides violence of you know, uh, kidnapping and robbing, there's also rape is a terrible uh, stain on the country. And a third of the women in Johannesburg said that they were raped at one point. So it really is not a kind of a theoretical problem. It's a kind of a real, real, real problem. Um, just a couple of words about the economy of the country. It's the second largest in Africa after Nigeria. But unemployment is at 34% is the highest in of all the world's major economic countries. Uh, at this point, they're sort of per capita income somewhere average, and there's 60 million people living in South Africa and their per capita income somewhere around 10 or $11,000 a year, the American money. Uh, so not at the bottom of the barrel, but certainly not at the top. They're the world's leading uh, producers of chromium, manganese, palladium, platinum, um, gold, they're number five. Coal, they're the third largest exporter of coal. Uh, iron ore is a huge export to China. Uh, the agriculture that they have is based on a phenomenal climate in, in some parts of the country where they grow all kinds of tropical fruits, uh, you know, pineapples and things like that, plus grapes and wine and fruit. Uh, uh, you know, if you, if you try to buy oranges in the summer in, in here in Canada, you'll find they're all, they all come from South Africa. And tourism also was important, of course, until COVID happened. They have this Kruger National Park where they take you on safaris to see all the elephants and rhinos and giraffes and everything else. And uh, it's a wonderful experience. So, um, yeah, I think I'm uh, at the end of my talk, more or less. I did visit the country uh, with a group tour, had a wonderful time, uh, but security was an issue. And, um, you know, some of you know how, uh, how much I, fitness is important to me and how much I love running. And they told me, uh, you know, we got to Johannesburg. They said, you're not leaving your hotel without an escort. We, I wanted to go just take money out of the bank across the street in a bank, uh, an ATM. And they said, no, I'm coming with you. So, um, you know, they really took it seriously. Um, the idea of, uh, you know, random, not random, but attacking people who might consider, be considered targets. Um, but it is a wonderful place to visit, uh, you know, uh, especially on a group. Uh, it is a beautiful country. Uh, 
So thanks again for listening and my apologies to you for having to wait. Um, and if you've got any comments or questions, let me know. Uh, the next two weeks, uh, there won't be a class because I will be traveling. Um, and uh, thanks all again. I think we're so going to give them, we're just going to yeah, give them give, a couple give of minutes. Yeah, and you can ask me anything. It doesn't have to be about South Africa, but anything that you have on your mind, any comments you want to make, just let me know. I'd be curious to know. Yeah, go ahead. I don't see any questions. What did you want to say? I was just wondering if any of our listeners have been there. Um, to uh, to to the country, <clears throat> uh, you know, when they look at the most beautiful cities in the world, and they have lists, you know, like um, Vancouver often comes up uh, number one or two, and Sydney, Australia, uh, sometimes San Francisco, but Cape Town, South Africa, is definitely on the very top of the list for physical beauty. It's got this enormous mountain kind of right in the middle of the city and all around the slopes of the mountain are vineyards and it's got um, the it's the point in a certain way where the Atlantic meets the Pacific and the waters of the Atlantic Ocean and, and sorry not the Pacific the Indian Ocean the waters are different and different temperatures and so you get all kinds of kind of churning up and all kinds of, um, of, of action of the water uh, and that leads to huge amounts of growth of, uh, you know, kelp and squids and mussels and all kinds of other sea life, which thrives on this kind of interchange of waters. And, um, you know, I've been down there at the bottom. They've got seal colonies and they've got penguin colonies. And it's really kind of uh, quite an amazing sight. I think everyone is enthralled by the presentation and imagining themselves somewhere like that right now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not I easy to get am. to. Yeah, you can't drive there. That's the only problem. <laughs> I think that's it um, for today. So okay, so, so thank much. you all very much. I will be seeing you in three weeks and uh, stay, hey, stay safe, healthy. I noticed a few white things coming out of the sky today, so I guess that's a, uh, a sign of the future. And, um, you know, I hope you're all well, and I'll, I'll catch up with you in three weeks. So thanks again. And tell me what your name is, who is who are not moder uh, moderating? Maria. Maria. Yes. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I, don't, I don't think we've met somehow. I don't know why, but... I Could think we met one but, time, but um, okay. our usual moderator is on vacation, yes. maybe somewhere as well. Right, and that, that's, why we, that's why we had the mix-up uh, this morning, this afternoon. Yeah. So, Maria, thank you so much again, and we'll see you guys all um, in three weeks. Bye. Oh, hold on. We have a question at the last minute. Oh, a question? Sure. Good. Yeah, what was <laughs> um, the question? What was essay acceptance of Jews in World War II is the question. Oh, the South African. So the position of the Jews in World War II was that they were, of course, extremely, um, that's an excellent question, really. We'll start with that. Um, the Jews in South Africa have always been very 
um, um, non-assimilated in the sense, in a certain sense, almost the same as the Jews here in Montreal, where you're presented with two different communities and you, you're kind of not accepted by either one, so you make your own way. And that was the way the South African Jewish community lived in. Extremely um, closely knit, uh, good community institutions, schools, uh, JCCs, everything else like that. Needless to say, they were very strongly um, uh, supporting the British uh, war effort. Uh, so many of them joined up with the army, the British army, and uh, because the, um, the British recruited soldiers from South Africa. South Africa sent their own army also to the Second World War. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember where did they fight. Um, I don't remember. I, they might have actually been on the Pacific front, but um, they, um, uh, the, the community was very strongly in favor of participation in the war, in the war effort. Um, uh, they're also extremely Zionist. So the uh, South African Jewish community, more than Jewish communities anywhere else in the world, in, in Canada or in US or in Britain, were very, very strongly Zionist. They had lots of different Zionist kind of organizations, youth groups, uh, belonging to sort of movements on the far, uh, to the far right, uh, the, the sort of, uh, the Khirut Menachem Begin's party, all the way to the left parties. And um, uh, they maintained those very close ties to Israel uh, all throughout the life of the state and donating huge amounts of money to the country. Um, you know, some of the largest uh, mining companies, uh, Anglo-American Gold, the Oppenheimer family, uh, you know, became very wealthy and donated lots of money to the country. And, um, you know, to this day, uh, there are, they, they set up a, a town called Afridar, which is like a kind of a planned community there. Um, there are huge communities uh, of Jews in, in Israel today from South Africa who, who are very close to each other and um, who, uh, you know, uh, live their sort of life there in, in, in Israel. And there was always a lot of backing and forthing and also, by the way, there were many Israelis who moved to South Africa. It's not when I was saying that the whites were leaving the country. It's not just a one-way street. I remember when we were, uh, you know, eating in restaurants in um, in Cape Town, and you know, asked the waitress where they were from, and she said Bulgaria. So uh, there were people. There are people moving to South Africa even uh, from Europe, even these days from Eastern Europe, and and many Israelis went to South Africa to to try to make their fortune there in the country, um, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the last 20 odd years. So it's a kind of an interplay or intermixture of, of, of people like that. But the community is definitely, and there was, uh, you know, very, again, you know, not so much intermarriage, not so much assimilation, simply because the community rested as a community, stayed as a community. We have a follow-up question from the same yeah. uh, person. Could Jews who fled Europe get into South Africa at the time? Uh, no, uh, no. Um, the, um, 
uh, well, let's put it like this. You know, uh, up, uh, up until the time when the war broke out, in other words, up until 1939, uh, Jews who were leaving, say, uh, Austria or Germany, uh, some of them were able to get uh, to South Africa, but it would have been kind of not a first choice because it was so far and expensive to get there when they could have gone to Great Britain or, you know, in that time they went first to Holland or Belgium or France, which were much closer. Uh, once the war broke out, uh, well, then, uh, you know, there wasn't any way to get out of, the, out of Europe uh, uh, after that. But when the war finished, when the war was over, uh, you know, people who had family ties in South Africa were definitely able to go there, and many did, um, uh, you know, to join the community that was already there. So, like I said, by 1970, there were 120,000 uh, Jews in South Africa, which made it one of the world's largest Jewish communities after, you know, of course, Russia, of course, uh, Canada, US, uh, Argentina. Um, but after the, the big, those big ones, South Africa was kind of on the next, on the next level, so, so to speak. Um, but the decline there has been faster than declines in other places, except for, of course, Russia, Ukraine, and, you know, those countries where people kind of couldn't leave. And then when the doors opened, they all ran out. <clears throat> Any, any other questions? I think that's all for today. That's it. Thank you so much. Okay. We're looking forward to the next one. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. I so much appreciate it. I don't know if any of you are, you know, super eagle-eyed people, but uh, I moved. We moved after 34 years uh, Wednesday. So this is my new uh, dwelling doesn't look like much from, from the camera point of view. I could see just a wall behind me, but uh, it's, um, you know, uh, we moved from a duplex into an apartment and it's uh, a different way of living, but, you know, for us, it's what we decided to do and it's, uh, it's much easier this way. So um, we will see you all uh, in three weeks. Thanks again. Bye, thank you. Happy homecoming. Bye-bye, <laughs> bye. bye. bye.